This morning, it is my task to teach on the last of the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. Soli Deo Gloria, or Glory to God Alone. My text is Hebrews chapter 13, two verses, verses 20 and 21. Hebrews 13, 20 and 21. Please stand with me as I read in your hearing this portion of God's infallible word. I read from the King James Version. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you in all our frailty and limitations. For we must acknowledge that we have so many things in our life at the present moment which obviously can be shaken. Grant us the grace, O oh Father, to not set much store by it right now, for there is nothing stable under the sun. This sinful order has changed written all over. Yet, Father, we do have certain things which cannot be shaken, and we choose to delight in them this morning. For if the things which can be shaken should all be taken away, we have your gracious providence and love to sustain us. Father, whatever our losses may be, whatever our losses may be, we can rejoice and enjoy our present salvation. We are happy that we are standing at the foot of the cross of Christ, trusting only in the merit of his precious blood. And so it doesn't really matter what happens in our lives. We know that we have an anchor that is steadfast and sure. Father, we thank you that you have adopted us as your children. You, O Father, are our Father by your choice alone. We thank you that no change in circumstances can rob us of that. Although by losses we may be brought to poverty and strip beer, yet you promise that in your house there are many mansions. Therefore we will not be troubled. Father, we also thank you for the permanent blessing which is the love of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is God and man. And as such, he loves us with all the strength of his affectionate nature and that nothing can affect that. That's rock solid and we thank you for that. So whatever our troubles will be, grant us faith and courage, we pray. In your son's name, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen.
Brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, the five solars, I must repeat, is a term used to designate five great foundational rallying cries of the Protestant reformers. They are as follows Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone, Sola Gratia, Grace alone, Sola Fide, Faith alone, Sola Christus, Christ alone. And for this morning, Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be glory. These five solas were developed in response to specific perversions of the truth that were taught by the Roman Catholic Church. Why Soli Deo Gloria? The Catholic Church adhered to what Martin Luther called the theology of glory in opposition to the theology of the cross in which the glory for a sinner's salvation could be attributed partly to Christ partly to Mary and the saints and partly to the sinner himself or herself the reformers responded no the only true gospel is that which gives all glory to God alone as taught in the Holy Scriptures. Each of the great souls is summed up in the fifth soul, soul in Deo Gloria. It is what the Apostle Paul expressed in Romans 11, 36 when he wrote, To him be the glory forever. Amen. These words follow naturally from the preceding words for from him and through him and to him are all things since it is because all things really are from God and to God that we say to God be all the glory alone. Today, the Roman Catholic Church teaches the same essential perversions of truth. Nothing has changed. Of course, they're being quite ecumenical and are wanting to engage other denominations. But nothing has changed. Nothing at all has changed. They're teaching the same essential perversions of truth and much of Protestantism has seen a regress to many of the same corruptions. In many circles, in many denominations, they're gradually going back to Rome. A lot of it is due to ignorance, you know. Where, where people think, well, we're all Christians, so they stop listening. They stop listening closely to what they actually say. It is a pressing need for Christians everywhere to reaffirm the champ, reaffirm and to also champion anew the fine solace which underlay and give impetus to the Protestant Reformation. This weekend, all over the world, people are celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And it is my hope that you can join in the celebration of these truths. Let me ask you a question. In what do you glory? I know that may seem like a strange question, but I'm very serious. 
in what do you glory? I'm serious because I'm convinced that every one of us glories or boasts in something or someone. Every one of us. We glory or boast in whatever we define ourselves with. So I guess the question really is, with what do you define yourself? Now, it is almost inevitable that in a culturally Christian environment like this, that even dunks would know that the right answer or the expected answer to the question is to affirm that you define yourself by the Lord Jesus Christ. But is that really true? Is that really the case? Is that actually the case? Is Christ and his gospel truly the defining principle of your life? In your efforts to be relevant in our culture, to be accepted, to be accredited, are you daily attempting to integrate Holy Scripture with the secular philosophies of the day? Assimilating worldliness into your Christianity to ameliorate it in the eyes of men you want people to like you? Has the offense of the cross, and yes, there is an offense to the cross. Even Christ spoke of it. It's almost inevitable that they will hate him. For people not to hate him, he has to do something in them. But has the offense of the cross muted your professed gospel convictions as you cower under the pressure to blend in so that you may win the approbation of your peers? Has the materialism of our generation, whether we're talking more capitalistic materialism or dialectical materialism, I'm not getting into all that. But has the materialism of our generation defined you and does it serve as your primary criterion in defining others? Who has how much? Is that how your pecking order works? Okay, let's come home. Does a particular religious experience or maybe a particular religious tradition in which you have performed with excellence define your view of the world and yourself? I submit to you that even that is a problem. If you have so much let a particular religious tradition define you, hmm. so much so that your pride says, I, can, I can't listen to anything else. I can't listen to anything new. I, I, I can't hear you. Because you, you, you may be shaking some foundations that, my goodness, I have long family ties. I have a lot invested in this religion. So your ears are shut, so you, you really can't learn anything. Hmm. Are you boasting or glorying in your performance or your record or your achievement in such religion, religious views? Okay, for the sake of balance, I, I, I must ask about what some would consider to be obviously shallow matters, but if people are defining themselves with these things, I have to mention them. Hmm? Are you boasting? Are you glorying in your physical appearance? That's a big deal for some people. You know what I'm talking about, right? Like mirror, mirror on the wall. I'm not the most handsome or beautiful of them all. Is that what you glory in? That's what defines you. Taking care of your body. Boy, you work out. Man, you 
You fix your face, you fix your hair, you, you got the right, you glory in your physical appearance, maybe your health, maybe your strength, like you're really buff. I'm not buff, I have a little, pray for me. Okay. <laughs> what, what are you glorying? Are you glorying in your strength? Are you glorying in your racial or ethnic characteristics that you really think that sets you apart? Does this define you? Is this what you are all about? Is it your politics? I'm not saying anything, I'm not from Barbados. Okay? Is it your social status? Is it your sporting interest? You know, I used to be a really enthusiastic sports cricket watcher and everything, and even basketball. The basketball was abandoned after the era of Larry Bird and Magic Johnson. I am interested after that. I'm pretty much after Vivian Richards and them too. I'm finished with the, the cricket too. Let me tell you why. Because me and my wife, you know, after like our team would lose at basketball, or like we would lose in cricket, rest of start losing. We would be there on the couch looking at each other and looking at tears in our eyes. <laughs> we were so to this thing that oh my goodness, a sport is causing us such grief. Is it your sexuality? There are people who put that right in your face. They want to be defined by their sexuality. So they are marching in the streets to let you know they're proud of whatever they announce to be their sexual orientation, whatever that is. Is it that achievement, maybe that talent or skill that sets you apart from everybody else? Is that what you're boasting? Is that what you're glorying in? In what do you glory? It is very clear to me that biblical Christians should waste no time in attempting to interpret life or reality for God has already interpreted it for them in Holy Scripture. Their understanding of their duty is simply to think God's thoughts after Him. That's it. To that end, I have found this holy text to be very useful as a summary concerning the matter of just what we ought to be boasting about. To glory in anything else is simply to waste your life. For years, I've enjoyed a contemporary Christian song which can help us to cut to the chase of the matter. I'll quote it to you. In Christ alone will I glory, though I could pride myself in battles won. For I've been blessed beyond measure, and by his strength alone, I overcome. Oh, I could stop and count successes like diamonds in my hands. But these trophies could not equal to the grace by which I stand. In Christ alone, I place my trust and find my glory in the power of the cross. In every victory, let it be said of me, my source of strength, my source of hope. It's Christ alone. 
Another verse says, in Christ alone will I glory, for only by his grace I am redeemed. And only his tender mercy could reach beyond my weakness to my need. Now I seek no greater honor than just to know him more and to count my gains but losses and to glory in my Lord. I love it. In the immediately preceding verses of our text, our text is verses 20 and 21, but in verses 18 and 19, the inspired author of this epistle to the Hebrews makes a prayer request of himself. Look at it. He wrote, pray for us, for we trust we have a good conscience in all things willing to live honestly. But I beseech you the rather to do this that I may be restored to you the sooner. But in our text, he offers a prayer for the people he addresses. What a moving prayer. What a moving prayer. The wealth of theology and language in this benediction that virtually concludes his epistle compares favorably with the beauty and fullness of the first few verses of the introduction with which the author begins the epistle. This is fine author. He's a literary artist and a masterful theologian. The Holy Spirit has used him to speak even to us concerning glory in Christ alone. I have two things to say to you from the text. But I'm a Baptist preacher, so don't be fooled by that, okay? Glory in what God has done in Christ. And secondly, glory in what God is doing in Christians. Alright? But of course, on the glory in what God has done in Christ, I will have five sub-points. And when we talk about glory in what God is doing in Christians, I will have two. Alright? So let's proceed. Number one. Glory in what God has done in Christ. Look at verse 20. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Stop there. What exactly has God done in Christ? In short, in Christ our God has saved us. And there is salvation in none other. We can flesh this out by considering at least five ideas from the verse. Five. A, B, C, D, E. A. The author of our salvation. A is what? Come on, don't be afraid. You can talk to me. What is A? The author of our salvation. It starts out, Now the God of peace. Stop it. Now the God of peace. Let us not fail to notice that the inspired author has put the subject God first. Hmm. He described God as the God of peace. That is meaningful. For our God is the one who creates peace in the hearts and lives of people. Peace comes from God. Let us take note of the fact that the author does not pray may the peace of God. But may the God of peace, 
dispel distrust and dispel dissent. And God grants the gift of peace to his people so that they in turn are able to effect peace among their fellow men. Beloved, hostility with God is the basis for all hostility between men. If you are hostile with people right now, it's because you are hostile with God. But when you have the God of peace, the Prince of peace, giving you his peace, you will be at peace with others. It is only when the Prince of peace conquers the hearts of men with his peace, which passes all understanding, that humanity has any hope of an enduring reconciliation. You see, his peace is not an armistice, a temporary succession of hostilities. His peace is not a negotiated settlement for spiritual rebels have nothing to offer. His peace is not the absence of a storm, but peace in the midst of a storm. His peace is not the world's peace, so there is no need for your heart to be troubled. His peace removes stony hearts and replaces them with hearts of flesh. His peace prepares a table before you in the presence of your enemies. His peace anoints your head with oil so that your cup runs over. His peace is a perfect peace that keeps your mind safe. So what's eight again? Hmm? Come on, you can talk. What's eight? The author of our salvation. B, the authentication of our salvation. The authentication of our salvation. Let me pull another phrase from the verse. That brought again from the dead. That's all I need. That brought again from the dead. The doctrine of our Lord's resurrection is fundamental to Christian faith. So much so that one of the requirements for holding the office of apostle was to be an eyewitness of the resurrection. Acts chapter 1, verse 22. Hmm? So anybody who is an apostle has to be an eyewitness, a literal eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. So that disqualifies all the people today who are calling themselves apostles. Okay? They're all false apostles. Now, in their preaching, the apostles testified. And they wrote and proclaimed the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This was crucial. It was vital. The inspired author of this epistle mentions the resurrection of Jesus once in this benediction. Of course, he indirectly includes this doctrine when he introduces the topic of Christ's exaltation at the right hand of the majesty in heaven in chapter 1 verse 3. He writes about that, that great high priest who has gone through the heavens in chapter 4 verse 14. And he supposes that the readers will understand that Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. And in his summation of fundamental Christian doctrines, he lists the resurrection from the dead in chapter 6 and verse 2. Last, he alludes to the possibility of God raising Isaac from the dead in chapter 11, verse 19, and the actuality of women receiving the dead who were raised to life in chapter 11, verse 35. However, the importance of this doctrine to the gospel is incalculable. If we abandon it, there is no gospel. Beloved, without the resurrection, what we have 
is obviously not a savior at all. Defeated savior, what kind of foolishness is that? It is written in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 17. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, ye are yet in your sins. If he could not beat death, how could he save anyone from the same? But the inspired record is abundantly clear. It is clear that on the third day of his crucifixion, up from the grave, he arose. It is clear that the tomb was empty so that no grave could keep his body down. It is clear that at his second coming, the dead in Christ shall rise first, and we which are alive and remain shall be what? Caught up together with him, with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. It is clear that we shall ultimately say, So we have A. A is what again? The author of salvation. B. The authentication of our salvation. C. The administrator of our salvation. <laughs> what are we pulling from the verse? Three words. Our Lord Jesus. The administrator of our salvation. <laughs> hmm? Now, in addition to using the name Jesus, which calls to mind the earthly ministry and humanity of Christ, the inspired author designates him Lord. In chapter 2, verse 3, and chapter 7, verse 14, he is Lord. Although the title Lord occurs infrequently in Hebrews, its use in the Christian world was common at the time, for it served as a brief confession of faith to call Jesus Lord was a confession of faith. It is clear here in this benediction, at the end of this epistle, that the inspired author wants to emphasize the sovereignty of Christ. He is the Lord. As the introduction where he briefly points to the priestly and kingly offices of Christ, chapter 1, verse 3, so in his benediction he combines in one sentence a reference to the priesthood and kingship of Jesus. Of course, we have no use for the nonsense that some preach in which they would have Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord. Can you imagine that? They want to accept Christ as their Savior, but not as Lord. They want the blessings of forgiveness from Him without the need to keep His commandments. Hmm. Didn't our Lord say in John 14, 15, if you love me, what? Keep my commandments. Beloved, our deliverance is wrapped up in a person, the person of Jesus of Nazareth, in all of his mediatorial offices, all of his offices, as prophet, as priest, and as king. You can't separate Christ from his offices. We must never retreat from exalting him as the force of our deliverance. Unlike the false religions of this world, all three important mediatorial offices culminate in one divine person. He's not merely a prophet, but the prophet who is the truth. He's not merely a priest, but our eternal high priest who is also the sacrifice. He is not merely a king, 
but the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. Hallelujah. What are we talking about again? We're talking about glory in what God has done in Christ. And we mentioned A, what? The author of our salvation. B, the authentication of our salvation. C, the administrator of our salvation. D, the achievement of our salvation. <laughs> Look at the verse again now. Same verse 20. Hmm? And we're pulling now what phrase? That great shepherd of the sheep. That's what we want. That great shepherd of the sheep. The achievement of our salvation. Hmm. The words great shepherd of the sheep remind us of our Lord's teaching that he is the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. You remember John chapter 10 verse 11. That good shepherd that lays down his life for the sheep. In effect, the metaphor of the shepherd who dies for his sheep is equivalent to that of the high priest who offers himself as a sacrifice for his people. Especially the adjective great. <laughs> that great shepherd. The word great is telling for the inspired writer refers to a Lord as the great high priest in chapter 4, verse 14. The two concepts then complement each other. The apostle Peter depicts Jesus as the chief shepherd. I'm sure you can remember that. He's the chief shepherd in 1 Peter 5, 4. This great shepherd shed his blood and laid down his life for his sheep to obtain for them eternal redemption and to establish with them the eternal covenant that God had promised. Because of this, we can celebrate with the hymn writer, Tis done. Talk about Philip Dodridge when he said, Tis done, the great transactions done. I am the Lord's and he is mine. He drew me and I followed on, charmed to confess the voice divine. Tis done, the great transactions done. I am the Lord's and he is mine. He drew me and I followed on, charmed to confess the voice divine. Well, I said A, B, C, D, E. So let me try and wrap up this point, okay? E, the approbation of our salvation. Mm. The approbation of our salvation. What part of the verse do I want? The part that says, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Through the blood of the everlasting covenant. The approbation of our salvation. Listen. Through the prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, God announces his intention to establish an everlasting covenant with his people. You can read about it in Isaiah chapter 55 verse 3 or chapter 61 verse 8. In Jeremiah, you can read about it in chapter 32 verse 40 or chapter 50 verse 5. And in Ezekiel, you can read about it in chapter 16 verse 60 or chapter 37 verse 26. Okay, so all three of them announce God's intention to establish an everlasting covenant with his people. Now this covenant is everlasting because it is sealed in blood. Hmm. To be precise, the blood of the Messiah. In the messianic prophecy of Zion's king who enters Jerusalem on a donkey, you read about that in Zion, chapter 9, verse 9. In, in that messianic prophecy, 
with Messiah, Zion's king, is entering on a donkey. God promises his people deliverance because of the blood of my covenant. That's verse 11 of Zechariah chapter 9. Because of the blood of my covenant. Hmm. Where are we going with this? Two major themes dominate the epistle of, of Hebrews. The high priestly work of Christ summarized in the expression blood and the covenant that is eternal. Hmm. Blood and the covenant that is eternal. In this verse, once again, and for the last time in, in the epistle, these themes are highlighted. God's covenant with his people will remain forever. That covenant has been sealed with Christ's blood which was shed once for all. Once for all. No more of this killing of animals and sacrifices because Christ is the final sacrifice. Chapter 9, verse 26. Once for all. Chapter 10, verse 10. Once for all. It was the blood that was the instrument of official ratification that sealed my pardon. It was the blood that was not just an expiation, you know what I mean, right? A removal of the penalty. It was the blood, it's not just expiation, but it was propitiation. What's that? The restoration of fellowship and favor for my sin. It was the blood. I know it was the blood that ransomed me on Sunday. It was the blood. I know it was the blood that he saw and passed over me. I know you remember that image from Egypt. <laughs> God for his son's shed blood. For it will never lose its power. Okay, that was number one, right? Number two won't be that long, trust me. Okay? So number one was glory in what God has done in Christ. Number two, glory in what God is doing in Christians. Okay, go to verse 21 for that. Look at verse 21. No? Maybe we should read them together. <laughs> verse 20, Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory, Forever and ever. Amen. Glory in what God is doing in Christians. Verse 21. What exactly is God doing in the life of true Christians? What, what, what? I know that He didn't bring us this far to leave us on our own. I know that much. You see, I read the rhetorical question in Romans chapter 8 and verse 32. He that spared not his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Are you happy that he's not finished with you yet? I'm happy. I preach the gospel but I mourn over my sin. I still sin. I'm glad he's not finished with me yet. I hope you are. I'm a work in progress. I'm happy for I see so many faults in my life. Our text suggests at least two things that he's doing for true believers. 
him, it is of little help in making the right choices. One great 18th century preacher, American preacher, Jonathan Edwards, compared man's conscience with a sundial. I was actually vacationing in the Dominican Republic and they showed the oldest sundial in the Western Hemisphere. <laughs> they had it there. You know, I don't remember who put it there or what. I remember seeing, you know the sundials, right? You know, you tell time by the shadow from the sun, right? He said, Jonathan Edwards said, quote, as the sundial cannot make the hour known when the sun does not shine upon it, so conscience is not a plain or safe guide to duty unless it is enlightened by God's word. <laughs> sundial is useless when no sun is on. <laughs> conscience is useless when it is not informed by Holy Scripture. <laughs> the light of God's word must shine upon the conscience for it to be useful. You should never trust your conscience. You know, a lot of people like to say, well, my conscience doesn't bother me about that. <laughs> oh my goodness. Don't trust your conscience. You know, when my older children were teenagers, they used to like to tell me, Daddy, why don't you trust me? I said, I don't even trust myself. <laughs> How can I trust you? There are things that I have sworn I'll never do that. And guess what? The word of God. It should be clear that the believer's conscience should be directed to the scriptures, much the same as the needle of a compass invariably points north. The believer must look to God for help, direction, guidance, and wisdom. And because of the eternal covenant that God has made with us through Jesus Christ, He grants us the much needed assistance. The inspired writer of Hebrews prays. That God may work in us that which pleases Him. And the Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Philippi, formalizes human responsibility as well as divine sovereignty in salvation. He says, Wherefore, my beloved, where am I? Uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses uh, 12 and 13. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Mm. Why is God willing to work in us? The author is almost repetitious in the wording of the benediction. He spells out that through our Lord Jesus Christ, God himself works in us and equips us to do his will. Through Jesus Christ, therefore, we are in God and God works in us. When we are completing him, he will get all the glory. I said when we are completing him, he will get all the glory because we are ultimately his workmanship. It's all his work. Predestination, his work. Calling, his work. Justification, his work. Sanctification, his work. Glorification, his work. Hallelujah to the Lamb. We are his workmanship. In closing, I want to point you to the last phrase of verse 25. Look at verse 25. 
The phrase is, to whom be glory for how long? Hmm? What is it? Forever and ever. Amen. Now, I will not join the exegetical debate concerning whether the glory is directed to the Father or to the Son. I'm not joining them. For me alone, I'm satisfied only that the glory ends up in the right place, and that's not in us. <laughs> not in us. We need the constant reminder of Ephesians 2.9 that our salvation is not of works, lest any man should what? Boast. Our God will not share his glory with any flesh. So if there is any boasting, it must be in the Lord. So, back to the question. In what do you glory? In what do you boast? What is the principle of your life that defines you? Well, I don't know about you, but I, by the grace of God, have chosen to join with the Apostle Paul when he wrote in Galatians 6.14, But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. Beloved, it is all clear to me. I'm not confused. When I sing with Isaac Watts, was it for Christ that I died? He groaned upon a tree. Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. You know, to those words, another gentleman named Ralph Hudson added a sweet refrain. <laughs> uh, he wrote, At the cross, at the cross, when I first saw the light, and the burdens of my heart were rolled away. He said, it was there. Come on, man. <laughs> he wasn't confused. He said, it was there by faith. I received my sight. Now, I'm happy all the day. I may not be happy about my circumstances, but because of the cross, I am promised joy unspeakable and full of glory. Because of the cross, I have a hope that is steadfast and sure. Because of the cross, I have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Because of the cross, I can praise him that though I am not what I ought to be, I thank God I'm not what I used to be. Now if that sounds like boasting, let me confirm that I am boasting. But don't get confused. I am boasting, I am glorying in the cross of my Lord Jesus Christ. I will not boast in my own ability. I will not boast in my ethnicity. I will not boast in my religiosity. I will not boast of any superiority. God forbid that I should boast, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. Hallelujah! The Lord is worthy of all, all the praise and all the glory. Glory to God. Listen, I, 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 I must say that I know that some in our reformed tradition have taught themselves out of giving him emotional praise and ecstatic praise, you know. They are fearful that we, we might assimilate some of the aberrations of the charismatic movement. So they will be quick to advise some of us that we 
shouldn't get too loud or too emotional for we risk in doing so of being bitten by some strange emotional bug. Some have even embraced semi-ascetic notions and a perverted view of holiness that makes them ever suspicious of any manifestation of joy. So if they see joy anywhere, they are sure that somebody must be sitting. Corresponding doxology must come out to Christ. 